From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I had to leave because I had to take my liver out and wash it after the uh, after the <laughs> after my week in Ireland. It almost killed me. Everybody would pile into an enormous mosh type um, <laughs> thing, which you probably couldn't do now. Actually, I don't think I don't think teens are quite allowed to pile on top of each other on the floor in quite that way. So there was seemed like there was this underhanded dig at Killian, which so right. people are like they are the rivals. Now. I love that stuff. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. Is Killian Murphy actually the greatest actor of all time? Miriam talks to the Irish George Clooney, or just, you know, George Clooney. And should we cut short school holidays? Yes, obviously. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's dreaming of a Clooney Murphy Batman reboot. New year, new beginnings, they say, wherever they are. And in today's Playback Daily, a surprise guest appearance from yesterday's Sunday with Miriam. Our eponymous host spoke to one of the most famous people in the world, and it's fair to say that both she and George Clooney, for yes, it was he, came away relatively unscathed. Miriam was talking to George about his new film as director, The Boys in the Boat. Also, along for the ride, was Callum Turner, who stars in the film. Miriam began by asking George... We're buddies now, obviously. If it was the fact that the script was about a team of underdogs that appealed to him. I think all good sports movies, if you think about the sports movies that I sort of grew up watching, like Hoosiers and you know, Pride of the Yankees and all those films, the underdog is the, is the fun part of telling a good sports story. So when I read the book, I loved it. I thought it was going to be a hard film to make. And I think it was a hard film to make. Physically, definitely. Yeah, it was a hard well, film to make. But you know, the, when you had all these these really smart, talented, athletic young actors, we were okay. And when you're working with George, you're okay too. Yeah, 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 sure. And of course, as you said, Callum, it was grueling. I watched a clip where George said it really was a grueling schedule. What did he put you through? Uh, well, George and Grant set us up to succeed. They gave us an Olympic gold medalist, I believe, yeah, to yeah. train us for two months, four hours a day, and then we uh, we worked out for an hour on top of that and, and just got us into the position that we were able to actually do the thing. But that was training before we started shooting, and That's it right. was a three-and-a-half-month shoot, and you trained. I mean, we really shot the last race last at the end yeah, yeah yeah and you know by the end you they got up to you know there there's a stroke count how fast you can go and the the miracle of this actual team was they got up to 47 strokes 46 yeah 46 strokes in the in the final race at the end and these guys got up to 46 strokes so not at the end but we don't tell anybody that <laughs> The historical context, of course, is so important between World War One and World War Two. These rowers are competing at the Olympics in Berlin. So I suppose they're battling way more than just their sporting rivals, aren't they? Sure. Well, everybody was. You know, Jesse Owens was there, and that was about, you know, the African-American taking on the supposed supreme race. So there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot going on. Less known, and it was very hard for us to be a little, you know, we all know now how bad the Nazis were and how bad Hitler was. There were hints of it. There were Obviously, if you were paying attention, there were more hints. But it wasn't as, no one knew where that was going to go. And you can't play that in 1936. You know, you have to be like, mm. well, these guys seem like mm. idiots. But, you know, as opposed to they're going to be your great enemy, you know. It's a huge role for you, Callum, big lead role. How did you work with George, I suppose, to bring out the essence of Joe and his role on this team? 
Uh, well, being part of the boat was everything for Joe. He was abandoned by his family when he by his dad when he was 13 years old, and he finally finds solace in this in this boat and a family and a unity, and it means the world to him. Um, and working with George, it was a pleasure, man. I mean, we really built the character together, and um, that's actually not true. He built, he did all no, the work. No, no, we did. We talked about we talk about a lot yeah, of things, yeah. but you had to do it, and you did it. And that, the fun part about this is, you know. If you're if you're at all good at directing, about ninety percent we always talk about is Cassie. You know he was perfect for the part. It was a lot of work. He had to be, a, you know, an American. I'd never heard him with a British accent until like a couple of days ago, so I don't even know him now. It's like I have a, a I new to reintroduce friend. myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so he he knew what to do and he knew what was required of it, and he came in with the attitude of let's just do it, and that makes all the difference. But we talked about movie stars in the, uh, back in the day like Gary Cooper and mm -hmm. Spencer Tracy and, and, yeah. and, and, and honed in on, 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 a t on an archetype of person. Yeah. And I know, George, in other interviews you've mentioned water. You, of course, made the perfect storm. But what possessed you to go back to make a movie on water? I, honestly, stupidity. You know, you get to a certain age and you forget things. It's been about 20-some years since I'd done Perfect Storm, so I, I forgot what a misery working out. You know. Would you do it again? Never. <laughs> Ask me in 20, land, in 20 years, I'll be like, ah, let's go in the water. I've never done that. But, you know, it's hard because these boats are so much bigger than you think, and you can't really get close to them because of the oars. And so our camera boat had to stay behind them because if we get ahead of them, our wake will capsize them. So the way we shot it and trying to line them up and have eight boats moving at the exact same time, it was really, uh, it was complicated, but, uh, you know, you just have to get it right once, which is basically what yeah. we did, you know. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. And of course, Callum, we love any Irish connection. You've worked with Michael Fassbender, you've worked with Andrew Scott. I know you're working with Eve Hewson in Hedda. Where is that at the moment? They start filming in January, yeah. You work with Eve? Yeah, yeah. She's a good friend of mine. Well, you know, uh, Irish Connection, Clooney. What are you talking about? Yeah, this about? is Come the on. Irish Connection. Come on, I went there. I went and visited, uh, uh, and I had a I had a really wonderful time. I saw a bunch of Cloonies, which was fun to see. Relations, or yeah, yeah, yeah okay. relations. <laughs> I didn't know them, but it was a funny thing. I got there, and the minute you get there, you start to see all these people who look like all of your family, and you're like, oh my god, we're actually really related. You know, we all left during the famine, the potato famine. You know, our family did. So I think it was your great-great-grandfather who left from Kilkenny? Kilkenny, yeah. Are you going to come back and trace even more your ancestry? Of course. I, are you, I had to leave because I had to take my liver out and wash it after, the, uh, after, the, <laughs> after my week in Ireland. It almost killed me, you know. But we had a great... I, I love it there. It was crazy. Think about this. I got there in February... And it was 40 degrees and sunny the whole time I was there. Unbelievable. It was amazing. People said it was very unusual. And I know that actors like Callum, they speak glowingly about you directing them, but your fans also like to see you acting. So have you any acting roles coming up? Direct? I just did a movie with Brad Pitt called Wolves with this wonderful director named John Watts. And then I started a film in a couple of, um, in a month, I guess, with uh, a month and a half, with uh, this incredible director named Noah Bombeck, who's done some wonderful films. So I'm, yeah, I got, I got jobs, I got work, you know, I gotta, I gotta pay the rent sometimes. And from your point of view, Callum, this is such a huge role for you. How do you think it might impact on your career? 
Uh, I, listen, I'm very lucky to work with George and with Grant and to represent Joe, uh, Joe Rance and the, the, um, the University of Washington. And it was an honor for me. And uh, I just uh, want to keep working with good directors. I don't think he can figure it out. I don't think he can see it yet. Um, and if the film is successful, it will be a, a huge impact on his career because he's the lead in a, you know, in a film that we're very proud of and he does an amazing job. So we'll see. You we, know. we are very proud of it. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. And it's a pretty amazing story, too, of Joe and the barriers he faced. I mean, it could inspire lots of other people. Absolutely. It's an underdog story. And, uh, you know, what he was able to push through and achieve in his life is nothing short of remarkable. And he continued on after he finished mm -hmm. rowing. He was a re he married, uh, you know, his, Joyce, his, yeah. his girlfriend and they stayed together until Billy died. And they and, had he had a great life. And know. the boys would meet up once a year to row. Yeah, together. that's right. Well, look, congratulations to you both. It's a really great movie. So when will we see you back in Ireland, George? Uh, well, it won't be this year because I'm working. But, you know, my my kids, we took my kids there, but they were two when we went. So they're six now. I'd like them to go back and see it when it's uh, when they can understand uh, what all of my family members are saying. <laughs> Some guy called Clooney talking to Miriam O'Callaghan yesterday about visiting his ancestral homeland, as well as the movie he's directed called The Boys in the Boat, which is in cinemas from this Friday. On this morning's nine o'clock show monologue, the bold Shea Byrne began by questioning our New Year's fortitude. Are you adhering to your dry January? I heard the funniest quote this morning from a colleague of mine and Siobhan shall remain nameless because I don't want to mention her name. She said, I'm doing dry January, but not Saturdays. Now that, that's, you can't do that. You either, either do it or you don't. You can't, that's, that doesn't count as dry January. If you're going to cut it on Saturdays, it doesn't count. So what did you do on Saturday or did you, did you go out somewhere? Did, did by any chance you do what some people I know did and finished off the Christmas drinks? Found the various bottles of this and half pint of this and a little tip of this, a can of maybe strawberry and lemon flavoured gin that you got as a, a, a Christmas present or maybe the can of craft beer and a, bit, a little bit of that and then a spice bag and watch a film on Netflix? Or did you get up the next morning and go for a, a jog? Or did you do feng shui? Did you take down the decoration? Did you do something useful? Or did you just lie in bed till 11 o'clock feeling sorry for yourself? I'm not going to say which one of those I did, but it doesn't include a jog. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying. There was more salt on the spice bag than there is in the Himalayas or wherever the salt comes from. The salt lakes, the flat lakes of the salt. There was more salt on that spice bag. It was, it was unbelievable. It from the merely scary to the absolutely terrifying. We talked about the plane crash in Haneda last week in Japan and now over the weekend a door was torn off an Alaska Airlines flight while in the air. Uh, it's been found by a school teacher named only, name, only named as Bob. Hello Bob, only Bob. Bob found the, the door plug in his garden and there was an emergency landing. Nobody was uh, particularly injured, a lot of shaken people but what was interesting was they were in the climbing phase of the flight so the flight was on the way up, everybody was strapped in, the seatbelt light was on and nobody was walking around. The young gentleman who was sitting very near the the opening, his T-shirt was ripped off and uh, pilots' headsets and things were sucked out through the hole in the side of the aircraft. Had it been reached cruising altitude, had the seatbelt light gone off, and you know when the seatbelt light goes off here, all the way down the aircraft, it might have been a different story. So when the 
cabin crew give their safety briefing and they say, if you're not moving around the cabin, please, for safety, put on your seatbelt. I will absolutely have my seatbelt on as tight as they could possibly have it from now on. So that's a salutary tale there for the 737 MAX 9. 171 passengers flying from Portland and Oregon to Ontario in California. Really a miracle that nobody was seriously injured on that. And there's another quite large story that happened overnight that's doing the rounds today. A lot of talk about the Golden Globes this morning. Congratulations to our winners, our Irish winners. Poor Things by Irish producers Ed Guiney and Andrew Lowe. Cinematographer Robbie Ryan won two Golden Globes, including Best Film, Comedy or Musical. Killian Murphy uh, paid tribute to his fellow uh, stars. To all my fellow nominees, if you're Irish or not, you're all legends, you're stunning work, I salute you. Different things happening around the Golden Globes. If you're interested in, <laughs> I don't know why you would be, but you might be interested in Timothy Chalamet and one of the Jenners. Yes, that's Wonka actor Timothy Chalamet and influencer and entrepreneur Kylie Jenner confirmed their romance at Sunday night's Golden Globes. They're 28 and 26 respectively and they were seen sharing a kiss or several kisses at their table during one ad break during the ceremony. So it was obviously there was timed for one particular ad break. Not, not all the ad breaks. Can't be kissing during all the ad breaks. So if you're interested in that, you'll know that Timothy Chalamet now and Kylie Jenner have confirmed their romance. And it's obviously going to go very well and won't end badly. Isn't that, they never do. They always end well. They'll be together now for the next... They grow old together, I would say. Ah, now, Shay, don't be like that. Let the beautiful young people enjoy their newfound romance. Maybe it'll be forever after. But back to the serious business of the Golden Globes 2024 and everybody's favourite fictional dysfunctional family. Succession star Kieran Culkin, one of the Culkin family, uh, he had a, a win, and a rare win for him. He took the stage to receive his trophy for the best performance by an actor in a television series and drama. He channelled his foul-mouthed succession character and took a playful swipe at his fellow category nominee who was nominated for his work on the HBO series The Last of Us. Well, he got up on the stage. He didn't expect to win because the last time he was uh, there, he was nominated back in 2003 uh, for a, a film. Uh, and he said, I will never be back in the room again. But he's been nominated a number of times for uh, succession. He had this to say about his uh, fine fellow actor, Pedro. Sorry, burping, indigestion. Um, I was nominated for Golden Globe like 20 years ago. And when that moment passed, I sort of remember thinking, I'm never going to be back in this room again. Thanks to Succession, I've been in here a couple times, it's nice, but I sort of uh, accepted I was never going to be on the stage, so this is a nice moment. Suck it, Pedro. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can say that. Mine. I don't think you can say that on the radio. Yes, that's what he said. He said to, uh, to Pedro Pascal, who's just the star of everything and everybody loves him. The Last of Us is his big hit. Uh, he said that to him. But also congratulations to Matthew McFadden, or Fadden, who uh, took home the statuette on Sunday night uh, for and as well, several members of the ensemble. Brian Cox, Sarah Stook and Jeremy Strong and others, others also scored nominations for their work in the series. I happened to meet Matthew once in London by mistake and have dinner with him and he's the most kind, warm, funny guy you'll ever hope to meet. Nothing like his character in the series Succession. I happened to meet Matthew by accident. Come on, Shay, what sort of tease is that? How do you meet a celeb by accident and then have dinner with them? Hmm, maybe they're both of the same agent. But let's keep talking about the Golden Globes and how Swifties the world over were more than a little peeved by a gag at the Queen of the Universe's expense. Now, Taylor Swift, the Swifties out there, and there are Swifties of all ages, all across the world and including Ireland. Well, the host of the Golden 
globes, Joe Coy decided to have a, a little joke at her expense. She's currently dating a, an NFL football player and there was a match just a few days ago and he decided to have a little, a little, little jab at her. As you know, we came on after a football doubleheader. Uh, the big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL, on the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. I swear. There's just more to go to. Here. Sorry about that. Now, the look on Taylor Swift's face, not impressed would might be the word. You know when you're at the dinner table and, or maybe the, you're at the, uh, out for dinner or something and you make an off-colour comment? Not that I. I would never do that. That would never happen. That would never happen. But you make an off-colour comment and the face of somebody across the way, well, that was Taylor Swift's face because she's been in the news a little bit. The New York Times, this is an extraordinary piece of uh, journalism. The New York Times receives backlash after attempt to outstar, uh, out the star. The paper's 5,000-word article has been criticised as sexist and grossly inappropriate. They decided to do a piece on her uh, questioning her sexuality. Taylor Swift is not a closeted lesbian, friends of the singer have said, about the 5,000-word article that appeared in the New York Times and raised questions about her sexuality. The 34-year-old superstar's associates are reportedly outraged by the essay, which mines Swift's back catalogue and performances for hairpins. These are a trendy word for clues that she's a homosexual. They're looking at what way she wore her hair, what way her costumes were, things she said, and they go go back and back and back as far as they can go. The pop star also regularly wears dresses with a rainbow motif and depicts herself as trapped in glass closets or in regular closets. Anna Marks, an opinion editor at the New York Times, wrote, In isolation, a single dropped hairpin is perhaps meaningless or accidental, but considered together, they're unfurling of a ballerina bun after a long performance. Have we not moved on from that? Like, do we really care about Taylor Swift's sexuality and whether what, what she is? Uh, Andrew Scott, our great friend Andrew Scott, uh, just just quite recently talked about homophobia. I'm going to make a pitch for getting rid of the expression openly gay. It's an expression that we actually only ever hear in the media. You are never at a party and you say, this is my openly oh, gay yeah. <laughs> Why do we put openly in front of that adjective? You know, we don't say you're openly Irish. You don't say you're openly left-handed. It, there's, there's something that's in it that's a little near shamelessly. Now, I think it's just time to, to sort of park it. Those articles don't help anybody. And people should be free to express whatever they want to be, be whatever they want to be. And they can be one thing one week and something else the other week. You don't need to be one thing. So it makes me a little bit angry. But anyway, that's the story of uh, Taylor Swift. Shea Byrne taking a stand on this morning's nine o'clock show. Fair play. the good folks in Wales have begun a consultation about potentially cutting short school holidays. This morning, Claire Byrne asked the question, should we also consider doing something similar? Joining Claire to debate the issue, although can't see why there's a debate, were Irish independent columnist Mary McCarthy and Simon Lewis from Carlo Educate Together. The summer holidays, Mary, we know in England and Wales, they're shorter than ours anyway. They have six weeks off. So will you tell us what the Welsh Government is, is looking at doing? So, yes, you're right, Claire. They have six weeks. And the Welsh Government, what they want to do is they want to shave off a week of the summer holidays because they've carried out research and they they think that it's going to be, make learning easier for children with additional le- needs and disadvantaged uh, from disadvantaged areas and also working parents they're finding it very difficult as well and they also 
want teachers not to feel so much pressure. So they only have six weeks holidays for primary and secondary. So they want to take a week off, but they don't want to reduce the days because they do 190 days in school. So they want to put on a week to the autumn midterm. So so they'd have two weeks then in autumn, would yeah, they? Yeah, so they're basically making the three terms more equal, right? Mm-hmm. And they're asking, I think they're doing a very clever thing, they're asking the public what they think. So they on the 21st of November, they opened up this eight-week consultation. So you can fill in a form online or post in a form. And they're asking people, do you think that the school calendar is fit for purpose? Because they're, like, on the Welsh Government page, they're saying it was 150 years ago when it was you know, formulated. So we think it's, they think it's out of date. High time to look. But they're asking people what they think. So you are recommending that the same be done here? I think it would be a fantastic thing to do here. And I think that it's long overdue. I mean, we are such an outlier here because our secondary holidays, for instance, they're a month longer than the primary. It's really unusual. I don't think people appreciate how much of an outlier we are in the EU that we have this. And... Secondary kids, they're only in for 166 days. That's well below the EU average. So so if we were to look at secondary, you'd be saying reduce the holidays, but don't give them the holidays at another time of the year. Maybe increase the number of days that they're in school. I think that that's that's what we should do. And they do do the learning hours, Claire, which is a, a big argument that you know, the teacher unions will make, that they do the learning hours. Actually, they do above average OECD learning hours at secondary. But I think it's too crammed, it's too pressurised. If you could space it out, give more breaks and then also maybe introduce some holistic, more holistic learning as well. And it's just fairer, Claire, because I, I've got two kids in secondary and I can see it. There's, it's the kids with who are well off. They go off to the Gale Talk, they do Spanish exchange, French exchange, exciting family holidays. It's not fair that, that we, you know, we, we are, we're it okay with a, that. creates a divide, does it? I think it creates a divide. And yes, you can say, OK, we, we actually do quite well internationally on scores for maths. We're quite good. The average is good. Reading, we're very, very good. But I think we have a huge grind culture here. We've one of the highest level of grinds in Europe. The ERSI did our study last so year. So more time in school might, might address that. I want to bring in Simon now. Simon, you're listening to all of that. You're well aware of what's happening in Wales and the fact that they're looking at this and asking people what they think. Do you think we should do the same here? Um, I have absolutely no problem uh, at all with uh, a consultation happening uh, around summer holidays. I think I think I agree with a lot of uh, what Mary's saying uh, in terms of spreading the the year out. Um, you know, we, we the legacy of these of of eight week uh, summer holidays probably goes back to days when we were more rural and there was help needed in the farm during the summer months. Um, but I, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, and the idea of spreading uh, of two weeks in October and uh, and and spreading more evening. I mean, sounds sounds like a, a reasonably good idea, and I don't think many teachers would have a huge problem with that. Really? Um, no, I don't. I, don't, I mean, I, I mean, every, every teacher is going to be different. I mean, I can speak for myself. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm I'm I guess in in my school, uh, I suppose what what happens behind the scenes in a way. Uh, I Mary mentioned, you know, children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Many of them already get. Um, extra uh, tuition during the summer holidays. Uh, we run uh, what's known as a colloquially as a desh camp. So that's an extra two weeks of school for children in poverty situations. You have children with additional needs get an extra month of school uh, during the summer holidays. So I, I'm in school uh, for the whole of July, and uh, the uh, and I mean. 
then then there's a, a couple of weeks off in August. So I mean, different schools are you know have different contexts. And in fairness, the Department of Education they have brought in uh, summer programs for children from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds mm-hmm. with additional needs. So but I suppose that's know, that's really the department saying that some children need this extra time. So I wonder then, do you look at that example and go, well, actually, be no harm to reduce the school holidays across the board at primary level. That's what you know best. I mean, do you think that there's a need maybe to increase the teaching hours, increase the number of days and not spread out that additional day off that we'd be reducing the summer by? I I don't really see a reason for increasing uh, hours. I mean, it, it, teaching, as, as you know, uh, Claire is, is one of those jobs where people think we don't <laughs> do as much as we do in, in very much the same way as I'm sure people look at you and say, God, you only do two hours a day, so what could you be doing for the rest of the day? That's I mean, there's right. plenty, you know, do you know what I mean? Lying uh, around, that's what I'm doing. Oh, Simon, <laughs> same as yourself. <laughs> same as myself, but it, as, as you know, it's an incredibly intense job and I mean, I don't mean to over-exaggerate it, but you don't, we don't go asking, you know, you know professional athletes, you know, you should be running a bit more often or you should be doing it but you've got certain jobs that are quite intense and teaching is one of those where it, it, is, it, 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 mm-hmm. is, it is quite intense but not only for the teachers but for the children as well I mean for parents who have children uh, for parents uh, they, they have their children coming up to breaks they're exhausted and um, and what we want to do I think is I think spreading out the, uh, the days I mean there's 182 uh, days in the academic year for, for primary level and if we spread those out a little more I think you know I think there's no harm in having that conversation. I don't think too many people would be, um, you know, would have a difficulty in actually discussing it. That's Simon Lewis from Carlow Educate Together and Irish Independent columnist Mary McCarthy talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the notion of cutting short school holidays. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes is the only rational response. Surely. Well, there was no escaping the Golden Globes on the wireless today, and Ray Darcy was the one who dived in the deepest, getting Killian Murphy's English teacher, William Wall, on the line to talk about the success of his most famous pupil. It must be really exciting to see a former pupil receiving a Golden Globe um, for such yeah. a big movie, like Oppenheimer, such a big, important movie. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. Um, I mean, I... I I'd been asked many times if I knew that he was going to reach those heights when he was in school, you know. Mm. And the answer to that is simply no. You couldn't know. <laughs> but, I thought I thought but, was going, yes, he was brilliant from the start. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, he was a, a remarkable kid in, in some ways, you yeah. know. Uh, I mean, he was a rogue. Yeah. Um, my wife taught him mathematics and, and uh, he and his class drove around the bend okay. um, but uh, he, he was a natural where English was concerned he just understood it you know he got poetry he got uh, we were doing Shakespeare he just got it you know mm. and you know I'm not talking about a kid who worked hard and was likely to do well in his exams and all that other stuff there are a lot of those kids but not very many kids who who actually understand what it's about the mm. whole thing and, and you know, that's so, I mean, I knew, I remember advising him that a career in the arts would be good for him. Uh, he says I advised him to go into drama. I actually don't remember that. We're talking about 30 or 40 years ago. I love you, William Moore, um, because you, you, you could just go with it and say he says and you could just take it. But you're saying you can't remember telling him to pursue the career uh, he's, he's been rewarded for. Well, I'm, I'm talking to RTE, so a measure of honesty is probably <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's the the Presentation Brothers College in Mardike in Cork City. Um, That's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
he's soft-spoken, Killian. Was was he always that way? He was, yeah. yeah. Um, he was. Um, yeah, in, in actual fact, um, you know, a school like that, um, rugby was a huge thing. Mm. And uh, so sport was, if you weren't famous in sport, you weren't famous in the school, you know. And um, Killian just rejected all that. He was always into the artistic side. As a musician, for example, he was a, they had a fantastic band uh, called the Sons of Mr. Green Jeans. His brother uh, was in of, it. His brother was in it, yeah. yeah. And if I remember rightly, a guy called Bob Jackson. Um, I can't, I, there may have been a fourth member that I, but I can't remember. Mm. And um, they, they, they had a sort of a 1960s vibe. They used to wear caftans and elephant flares, and right. they used to burn in, incense in the. Uh, they used to do school concerts, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they'd burn incense, incense in the theatre beforehand, you know. And I remember once doing um, crowd control duties outside the door and there was a couple of first years there and you could smell the the um the jostics from outside you yeah. know and one guy said to the other ah, i can smell the incest already <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, but yeah it's um did he and were there school productions plays uh there were but i don't remember what part he played in them right yeah at this stage uh you know he he first got into theater um Again, something organised by my wife, actually. Um, she used to run the um, fourth year, transition year programme. Mm. And uh, she, she organised for Pat Kiernan, who was the fantastic um, director of Corcadorica Theatre Company. She organised him to come in. He was a former pupil in school to come in and, and teach drama, you know. Mm. And that's where Killian got his first bite of drama. Um, he couldn't have started with a better man, you know. Uh, and... Later, he went on to do Disco Pigs yes. for Corcadorica. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really the... And that's, that's where he met his wife. I was reading today. That's where he met his wife when they toured right, the country. Yeah. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it says in the papers. It says in the papers. It must be true. It must be true. Yeah, it must, must be, be true, true. yeah. Uh, and I, any contact between you and him over the years? Yeah, we write to each other periodically. Uh, it's a long time since we met now. He's not often in Cork, actually. And in fact, he's not often in Ireland. Mm. But um, but we write to each other from time to time. Um, I wrote to him this morning, you now, for example, to congratulate him, and uh, he wrote to me just before Christmas sometime. So um, yeah, we're in touch all the time. Yeah, I'd say I could safely say we be we stayed friends. You know, great. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. And what yeah. about um, Oscar hopes now? Do you know I don't want to jinx it. Okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I have strong feelings on the matter, but I don't want to think so. Okay, you know? fair enough. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing uh, film, Oppenheimer. Is listen, if we want film. an honest opinion on anything, William, we'll get back on to you because... You're, Thanks very much. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, my opinion's on everything. You're right, right. Uh, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. Somebody yeah, close to me says that to me. William Wall, thanks very much. Thanks, Ray. Thank right, you. Good luck. See you. That's William Wall now who uh, taught English to Killian Murphy. Uh, Jen Gannon, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I, I can jinx everything for Killian if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to say he's going to win an Oscar. I think, you know, I mean, from what we saw last night, now we did get our hopes up last year. We were in the same position last year with Colin Farrell, Banshees of Inishira, mm. winning the Golden Globe for Best Actor. And it had the same feeling last night with Killian. And we can get our hopes raised like that. But I will say there was this audience reaction that was very 
different for Killian, as in people were, you know, he's getting kind of a standing ovation, almost like he's this Daniel Day-Lewis-esque character. And people were treating it as something like this is very revered. And that's what we're thinking in line with Oscars. Will you tell people who just casually follow these things the difference between the Golden Globes and the Oscars? The Golden Globes are a lot different, as in the category spread is huge. Um, You have something like, you know, best drama, best actor in a drama, but then it's split between that and comedy and musicals. So you can have a lot of people that would be nominated in the same category in the Oscars spread out so they win uh-huh. there's more awards so for example, to win an award Barbie and Oppenheimer weren't exactly. in the same category last exactly. night but neither Barbie's were the still actors lost. Barbie's right. okay. still lost everybody thought by splitting them up Barbie would be a shoe in to win the kind of lighter you know quote unquote awards as in for comedy or, or a musical and it didn't it didn't do it at all it was Jorgos Lanthimos's poor things that actually swept the board produced with, like, by Emma Element Stone. Yeah. yeah which is an Irish production yeah, yes. so yeah. like amazing for them okay. and Emma Stone is one of the ones to watch definitely for the Oscars as well coming up to it but I, you know it's a very tough category because Lily Gladstone for Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon she won in the Golden Globes in the drama side of things so they will be put together yes. against each other for the Oscars so it's a lot tougher race so for the Oscars who will Killian Murphy be up against in the Oscars that he wasn't up against in the well, Golden Globes Well the, the big thing is look the media are making a lot of noise about him and Bradley Cooper because Bradley Cooper Maestro is Maestro the, the Leonard Bernstein uh, biopic but Bradley Cooper was interviewed doing Actors on Actors which is where you know the actors interview each other before the awards and he made some kind of inferred this comment about I've been working on something like you know Maestro for about six years inhabiting this character it's not just like somebody rang me up and said what are you doing in six months time and when you read an interview Ooh. with Killian Murphy he said that that's what happened you know he was rung up at the time by by Chris, Christopher Nolan and said you know do you want to be part of Oppenheimer so there was, seemed like there was this underhanded dig at ooh, Killian ooh, which so people right. are like they are the rivals now. I love that stuff what yes. else What else are people Behind talking about Behind the scenes skullduggery yes. everyone is talking about Taylor Swift again she turned up and for this mad award that it's like they made up just for her it was like you know box office achievement which you know isn't the money the box office achievement best box office you think that's what the money is for like they say in Mad Men but so her era tour film was nominated yes. for this just so they guaranteed that she would turn up and get the light bulbs you know the flash bulbs on her and they were on her but she didn't actually end up winning the award Barbie that was one of the only awards that Barbie won okay. was for the box office achievement but she was sitting in the audience and she was talking to her friend Selena Gomez and this year they kept the cameras rolling during the breaks so you know when you come back in there was little inserts of what you may have missed you know when we're coming back to you live and you'd see you know the stars mingling with each other and then somebody caught up on the fact that Selena Gomez seemed to be talking to Taylor Swift about Kylie Jenner and Timothee Chalamet who made their couple's debut at the awards it was like their prom Very night exciting. it was like their prom <laughs> night they were wearing the heads off each other at the table were they? Yeah, for all the world to see Like, <laughs> so it looked as though someone a lip reader got involved right. and said that Selena Gomez was telling Taylor Swift that uh, Kylie Jenner wouldn't let her get a photo of her and Timothee Chalamet together and that is what the big scandal has okay. been with Selena so, Gomez coming out and saying S- it's Selena Gomez is a huge star herself she, so is she wanted massive. a selfie with Chalamet yeah because they were in a film together they were in a Woody Allen film together Years, years ago, ago uh, right. rainy day in New York, and they know each other. They're friends, um, and apparently Kylie said 
No, wasn't happening tonight. No okay. selfies with Timmy. Okay. And I don't blame her. I'd be keeping him to myself as and well. And the presenter comedian referred yes. to Taylor Swift. Oh, it was a bad one. Joe Coy, I mean, we're we're not really au fait with him. He used to be on Chelsea lately. Um, he has his own kind of stand-up, but he it went down like a fart in a spacesuit. Like the whole opening monologue, dreadful. And what, he just kind of made this really bad joke about Taylor Swift and then it's, the camera zoomed in on her face unimpressed you know, sipping her champagne which will be a meme for the ages now of her looking really unimpressed and he also made like really derivative jobs at Barbie right. at Barry Kogan like I've been mean, asking him about you know his nether regions like it was yeah. very it wasn't like Which are on show in Saltburn y- yeah, I believe Exactly yes, they are yeah. but at the same time you know it just wasn't the same kind of Tina Fey Amy Poehler you know that right. kind of sarcasm yes. and sharp wit it was more something you'd be used to back in the day it just didn't feel very modern and I, I, I've never seen an audience reaction like this before Meryl Streep had her head in her hands and not in a half jokey way in a seriously this okay. is bad get off the stage way so I'm feeling for him but at the same time he did throw his writers under the bus he said oh I only got this gig 10 days ago and I didn't write half these jokes don't do that me don't do that Entertainment journalist Jen Gannon catching us up on the Golden Globe scandals we might have missed on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show On this afternoon's Live Line, the discussion was about prostate cancer and Joe Duffy started by talking to Ger, who describes himself as a five-year prostate cancer survivor. And what was it like? Tell us how, how you were diagnosed and then what the experience of treatment was like. Well, the treatment I got differed slightly from yeah. the other guys who were on on Friday that I heard, Joe. Um, I had what was called ADT therapy, which is antigen deprivation therapy, or to the humans in this world, like yourself and myself, maybe hormone therapy would be a better one okay. on that. And uh, I had 39 treatments of uh, radiation after that. Wow. Over over what period were the 39 rounds? It would be da- daily, five days a week, until okay. I was finished. Now they say the health authorities say it, the, the the there are now less treatments, less rounds, so to speak, but they are of higher amounts. How did your thirty nine sessions go? The sessions went very well. Brilliant team in the hospital I was in. Um, I luckily I'm a morning person, so uh, I was in the hospital for seven o'clock in the morning for an eight o'clock um, okay. treatment and. Um, your prep work is between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning. You know how the machine is going and that, and uh, you get into the system. Uh, treatment itself, brilliant at the end of it. I was able to stop my hormone therapy mm-hmm. and uh, my radiation therapy. They all stopped for me on the day I finished my last treatment. So that was the good news, and my um, PSA count was down to negligible. Oh, yes. uh, right. The lowest it could be, which is great. And side effects? Yeah, like everything, Joe, it doesn't matter if you're taking mm. any kind of side effects yeah. and everything, and hopefully you don't get them. Yes, for me, I got a, a number of different side effects that others didn't get, uh, thankfully. And likewise, other people got side effects that I didn't get, thankfully. But um, one of the things for me, Joe, was um, because of the antigen deprivation therapy, you mm. uh, enter a thing called menopause, is what I put a name on it, because okay. uh, it's the same as a woman, only a man gets it. Um, the usual hot flushes, sweats at night, mm-hmm. bit of aggression, things that I wasn't used to, and uh, you know things outside of your control. But the other side was the positive side was it was there purposely to shrink my uh, cancer so that I could mm-hmm. uh, have a good target on the radiation. But as I said, 
when you finished, uh, my testosterone didn't move. It stayed down low. And uh, luckily, I'm now just started six months ago on HRT and I've got fantastic results out of it. But again, that doesn't suit everybody. I had to go through a process with uh, an endocrinologist um, and uh, he ticked me. I was worth having a go at it. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's worked very well for me, thankfully. And then your treatment was, what, six years ago? Um, it, yeah, it started six years ago, Joe. Okay. I had a heart event, unfortunately, about a fortnight before I was supposed to have my um, okay. biopsy. And um, uh, in fairness, the uh, urology department advised them so that the slot could go to somebody else to have the treat- to have the biopsy. And uh, they picked me up from there and I was diagnosed off an MRI. And uh, I then had... And was the diagnosis, was it... Was it um were you worried about you had, had you got symptoms of prostate? Were you worried, or it was as we discovered on on um, Friday? I think it was Brendan saying he was worried about skin tags and said while he was there, the doctor said we do your bloods, and that's how he discovered. Um, did, were you discovered through a routine? Yeah, no, I, Joe. Just for everyone's benefit, I have a brilliant GP, and he okay. had been. I, I look. I was involved in agriculture, and I used to have blood tests every year wow. for. Brucellosis and a thing called um, leptospirosis, and he added PSA into it when I hit 40. And he was monitoring my PSA, and I was having DREs, uh, which is digital rectal exams, and they were all coming up perfect. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, in the normal course of events, your PSA rises, and uh, in my mid 50s, it started to rise too much, and he referred me off to a urologist. So, yes, I knew what the story was. And, um, Jerry, what was the experience like? Was it a lonely journey, those 39 sessions? Like you say, are you still farming? I hope you are. No, I've retired. Okay, okay. (laughs) But you were were farming up to to your retirement. Yeah. And farming can be be a lonely um, occupation, uh, can't it? Yeah, it, it can be um, because you, you are working on your own and um, also have an, out, have an outside job, a self-employed and outside job as well. But uh, no, yes, um, you're lonely. Inside in a radiation suite on your own because the team come in, set you up and, and line you up for the treatment and then they all leave, right? They can talk to you on, uh, they can monitor you on a CCTV and talk to you through the speakers and that, mm-hmm. but there's nobody else in, in the room other than yourself. And where you get comfort is that uh, you meet other people who are yeah. queuing up waiting to get into the units to, to get their treatments and coincidentally at that hour of the morning it tended to be men who were in for prostate cancer okay. and would 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 your community your colleagues your friends your extended family they would they wouldn't would they know what you've gone through and two would they ask you about it because there is a bit of a taboo isn't there as was discovered on Friday about prostate cancer yeah. There is. There's a taboo in, in a number of ways. But yeah. The first thing, in, Joe, is the, the patient themselves. Uh, for me, anyway, I had to find out about this prostate cancer. Yeah. And for me, I hopped down to a daffodil centre when I was diagnosed. And I didn't want to talk to them. I just Irish wanted information. Society, yeah. yeah, and I just wanted information. I yeah. got an A4 envelope full of information went off home and read it. Okay. And when I, my diagnosis was confirmed after the biopsy, I went back down again to the um, Daffodil Centre and I said, right, I want to talk to somebody who's had this and uh, is 
mm-hmm. going to go through our, yeah. the options of the procedures that I have uh, been put forward to me, treatment procedures. So that was arranged on a peer-to-peer support and uh, a man rang me and I had a discussion and was very pleased with the, right. the information I received on how this person got on uh, after the treatment and they were actually a 10-year survivor. So, uh, yeah, I was quite happy with that and so happy was I, Joe, that I've actually become a peer-to-peer supporter oh, of the Irish Cancer Society. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So, you know, getting back to others who are coming up and things are changing every day. That's the amazing Jer, a five-year prostate cancer survivor, talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. Jackie Lynham turned 50 at the end of the year. On this morning's nine o'clock show, the poet and librarian told Shay Byrne about her 50 at 50 list and how she's making 2024 a year to remember. So last year I had a big ambition, which was to publish my own writing. Um, and I wanted to do that before I turned 50. So at the end of September, I published a book called Traces, which is poems and essays. So that was like a big ambition. But this year I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to do quieter things and for different reasons. I'm having a quieter year this year. Um, so I had an idea that I would do one thing a week for the year. So sort of 50 ways to celebrate being 50. But these are things I want to do that bring me joy. So I know at this time of the year, people have their New Year resolutions and their to-do list and things they feel they should be doing. But this is not things I feel I ought to be doing. These are things I really want to do. So things that would bring me joy. But my budget is tiny, Shay. So I'm um, looking for free things, things that cost maybe 15 euro. So going to, I love culture. I'm a big culture fan. Anything from music, film, theatre, books. So I was thinking of places I could go and that's why I put out the call on Twitter for some suggestions. I had a few suggestions myself, but I thought, you know, it's always a good yeah. idea to get other people's ideas. So what, what kind of suggestions did you get back? OK, well, um, my friend Rose suggested going to the Hugh Lane Gallery. They do free concerts at, at lunchtime on Sundays. Seemingly they book up very quickly, so I'm hoping I'll be able to bag a ticket for is, one of those. In Dublin, yeah. In Dublin, yeah. So I'm based in Dublin. Um, now, I work for Dublin City Library, so I'm well aware that that's, there's loads of free events all the time going on in the city and around the country. Libraries are brilliant for that. So I'm looking for other cultural institutions that are having free or cheap events. So I bought tickets for the Abbey Theatre. They do 15 euro tickets for every performance oh. of their plays. There's always a certain number of cheap tickets going sale, so I'm going to see the queer fella, um, Brendan Behan's play. That looks amazing, yeah. I yeah, well, seemingly there's a rumour in our family that we're related to Brendan Behan somehow. My mum is a Bean, and we're convinced somewhere along the line we're related. So I I know his um, it was his anniversary last year, and I meant to delve a bit more into that, but I didn't get a chance. But anyway, I'm going to see that. Um, myself and my husband are going to do a Gershwin um, Blue, Rhapsody in Blue 100 years in the National Concert Hall that I heard advertised on the radio and normally those tickets would probably be quite expensive when, but when I looked it up there were 15 euro tickets available so I bagged two of them um, and I started off last week actually with on Saturday and was my first 50 at 50 idea I went to see Mary Coughlin and Maria Doyle Kennedy at a Nullig Naman event in the North Strand Church and that was amazing. So that was a great start. So my expectations are high now. But even though I'm on a small budget, I'm expecting to do some great things. Any this plans year. for outside Dublin? Um, well, now you see, my budget is 50 euro a month. So it'll depend if I can get somebody will transport me outside Dublin for free. Maybe. Yeah. You got the train to Wexford. Now, I did that a few years ago and I absolutely loved it. And I did it on my own. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. I'm not really looking to do everything with people. I'm actually trying to do things on my own this year because I don't really want to consult anybody about this. 
I know that sounds quite selfish, no. but it's not for selfish reasons. It's when you're married, you need to have to explain everything that you do. <laughs> you know, I mean, in fairness, that's the how it works. But. Well, I love spending time with people. I have great friends and great family and great husband, and I will be doing some of these things with them. But I want to do things that um, bring me joy and that I don't really have to consult everybody else about. Um, so that might be going to the cinema on a Tuesday afternoon on my own to see a film that nobody else wants to see. Or going to Beauty's Cafe on a Monday when it's raining outside and bringing my book with me. Oh, yeah. I'm going to a park. Um, there's loads of great parks in Dublin and I'm lucky to live near a few of them. St. Catherine's Park and Lucan and the Phoenix Park. But I might try and delve over to this side of the city a bit more, maybe the south side. There's loads to offer. Loads yeah. to offer. I'm from the north side, so I, I, I like I like both sides. And what's the family situation at home? How many is there? Are there children? Yes, yeah, so I have three children. Um, I have a son who's 20, a daughter who's 17, and my youngest daughter is 14. Okay, so that gives you a little a little more freedom. My kids are around the same age. So you have a little, little yeah, more freedom. Yeah, a bit yeah. more time to myself now. As you, as, you, as you journey there. You turned 50 when? 30th of December, so I'm just a little bit over a week into this new decade of my life. So. And ha- how's it been? Has it seen massive changes in your life? No, not so far, but, uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be here at this stage. I know some people don't like getting older, but to be honest with you, you're either getting older or you're dead. So <laughs> I'm happy to be here and just making the most of life. Um, I've got a, a great life and I'm happy to... Yeah, just do some nice things this year just to make it a little bit better. Did you have the proverbial big party, the big the big five O party? No, I didn't. You know what? Because I had a launch for my book in um, October in Pierce Street Library and that was like a big night out and it was brilliant. But I didn't really get a chance to talk to people. And I, I'm sort of one of these people that likes to have good chats, you know. So I like to talk to just one or two people at a time and have a proper conversation so I had a little gathering in my kitchen with some of my closest friends and my sister. Oh, that sounds right. It was lovely. It was exactly what I wanted. We had the karaoke machine on. We were dancing around the kitchen and just having a bit of a laugh. There's a, a text in that says uh, that, that we heard um, heard your piece on Sunday Miscellany, Jackie's piece on Sunday Miscellany. Did you have a piece on Sunday Miscellany? I did. I've actually had five pieces oh, on Sunday well, Miscellany. Oh, I do, do apologise. <laughs> five? Yeah, That's so I, I came quite late to writing. I only started writing in my 40s and a f- good friend of mine, Aoife Barry, had a piece on Sunday Miscellany and that inspired me to send in a few pieces myself. And I was very lucky that, um, I think it was the second piece I sent in, it was about the Hollis Flowers, about blagging my way into the National Concert Hall years ago when I was a teenager to try and get in to meet them because I wanted to interview them for my school magazine. So I wrote a piece about that and Sarah Vinci, who is the producer, the brilliant producer of Sunday Miscellany, liked it and invited me in to record it. And she was so encouraging that day when I was leaving the studio. She said to me, she will see you again. And I was like, oh, really, will you? And she said, yeah, of course, keep sending in pieces. We're always looking for new voices. So I did and I've had four, uh, five now. And actually, I had an amazing experience um, last year because I wrote a piece about having a December birthday. And that was chosen to be included in the Christmas show in the National Concert Hall. So I got to stand up in front of a sold out National Concert Hall to read my piece. And then the amazing RTE orchestra followed with their music. And it was just fabulous. That's librarian and poet Jackie Lynham, who turned 50 at the end of last year, talking to Shay Byrne on the nine o'clock show this morning about her 50 at 50 list. Jackie's book, Traces, is available now. Finally, on today's Playback Daily, Nadine O'Regan, editor of the Business Post magazine and RTE Radio 1 music presenter, joined Claire Byrne to give give an introduction to the seminal rock band Nirvana. 
Good, good morning, Nadine. Good morning. You're very welcome. You. Nirvana fan? Oh, huge fan. Just listening to that track, it brings me back to my teenage years and the moment at the town hall discos in, in Skibreen in West Cork where everybody would wait, you know, you'd wait, the, you'd have the, the, the lyrics play and the verse and then suddenly the chorus would kick in and everybody would pile into an enormous mosh type um, <laughs> thing, which you probably couldn't do now, actually. I don't think I don't think teens are quite allowed to pile on top of each other on the floor in quite that way. But at the time in the 90s, it was kind of an extraordinary moment because you have to go back to, to think of the context. There was no Spotify, no internet, no YouTube. Music was very prized and precious. So to gain access to it was 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 difficult mm-hmm. and uh, everybody was buying music on CDs. And so, you know, there was a very sort of narrow stream um, through which you could actually access music. So when Nirvana started emerging in the early 1990s, first off, um, you know, to be able to even hear them felt felt precious, you know. But then also uh, they tapped into a sort of uh, sense of alienation or disaffection that perhaps youth, youth movements around the world were feeling. So there was something about this really sneaky bass guitar that would come in and this sort of very tonally disaffected vocal that Kurt Cobain had that really resonated with um, audiences around the world in part because it felt like a secret from your parents you know if you tried to play was, and it was pushback against everything else that was around at the time yeah I remember like getting into Nirvana and Nirvana and Pearl Jam at the time were the two big bands and they were seen as vying against each other and you would get the CD or even the cassette and listen to it and think well I can't play that loud I can't play that my parents are going to hear that they're, they're, they think I'm studying uh, so it felt very much like your secret and then um, because of the rise of MTV in tandem and MTV's decision to put Nirvana centre stage and say look we're going to playlist we're going to put Smells Like Teen Spirit on heavy rotation and they had the most incredible video for Smells Like Teen Spirit it was this kind of um, pep rally gone wrong sort of vibe where Kurt Cobain was playing guitar and singing in front of this uh, like audience who slowly got crazier and crazier with these high school cheerleaders who were losing their minds and there was something about the the way the video was was colorized as well it was all in these sort of dark grungy tones that again spoke to the sense of um something in the in the undergrowth something different something exciting and you have to bear in mind what was what was there before because there'd been a lot of hair metal a lot of van halen a lot of spandex i think people were tired of that yeah well it was very different to that even though it broadly belonged under the same genre it was definitely a split away uh, from what people had been used to when when they think about rock for sure. And bands like Guns N' Roses were really terrified by what happened when uh, Nirvana, uh, Sonic Youth, Mud Honey, um, you know, all those bands started emerging, Smashing Pumpkins, because they swept away what had gone before. And you have to bear in mind, there was something about that sort of shiny hair metal um, crowd where they kind of made, they placed women on the sort of, in, in a very curious light, you know, the kind of girls, girls, girls vibe that they had. Whereas the grunge movement was totally 
totally different. They were talking about alienation um, and they were talking about the human experience. They weren't really um, saying that, you know, women are just this. It mm-hmm. was about humanity in general. I think women really responded to that. Let's listen to some more now because you mentioned there that I couldn't play this loudly at home when I was listening mm-hmm. to it, but they were loud. I mean, that that's what was their whole sound. Um, this is Blue from their first album, Bleach. Give us a bit then, Nadine, of the of the background and where they came from. Yeah, so they were formed in Aberdeen in the late 1980s and the key lineup would have been Kirk Cobain, Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl, who has gone on to become such a, a huge figure in rock music with Foo Fighters. And it really is remarkable, by the way, that he's managed to be in two of the biggest bands, contemporary bands um, of the of, of this generation. Um, but they they were they had small beginnings, but big ambitions. Kurt Cobain uh, had had a difficult childhood. Uh, his parents had divorced at the age of nine, and he'd really been sent around the houses. Literally, he'd stayed in friends' houses. He'd stayed with his his father, his stepmother. He tried staying in his mother's house; it hadn't worked out. And so he had really had quite a traumatic past. And he was a, a, a doodler, a, a lyric writer but also a gifted visual artist and they formed the band um, brought Dave Grohl in um, just before uh, the release of Nevermind which would have been the key album from them uh, released back in 1991 September 1991 and he was ambitious is the important thing to say. I think a lot of people didn't really realise that. They thought that he was somebody who was keeping his head down. Mm, and like an accidental star. An accidental star. But actually he went into uh, the New York offices of Geffen, uh, you know, the big leagues and said, I want to be... Um, I want to be in the biggest band in the world. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very clear about that. And when they became, subsequently became the biggest band in the world or one of the biggest bands in the world, Dave Grohl has documented in his uh, recent memoir how awkward and difficult that actually was for them because I think sometimes, you know, be careful what you wish for because they got it and suddenly they had all this attention on them. And Dave Grohl uh, wrote about how he felt the tug of war within that, that he had always loved as a little boy, top 40 music. And, and actually so with Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain had grown up on the Beatles, you know. Um, but then, you know, as an indie artist, they had renounced the mainstream. They'd become jaded and judgmental. And Dave Grohl says he didn't know what was OK anymore to like or dislike because he felt like he was part of this cool punk scene. Um, but he also was rejoicing in the fact that more and more people were showing up and loving their music. And he felt the warmth of the crowd and the warmth of the experience. So it was very difficult for every single member of that band. That's Nadine O'Regan, editor of the Business Post magazine and RTE Radio 1 music presenter, talking Nirvana to Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuridon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.